0: Today's guest is the best-selling author and historian Dan Jones. Dan is best known for writing historical non-fiction about the Middle Ages, but he's recently turned his hand to writing a ghost story using a medieval spooky tale as his template. Our content director, Dave Musgrove, calls up with Dan to find out more.
3: Dan, you've, you've been uh, prolific this year of your writing. Not only have you written a, a huge, wide-ranging history of medieval Europe uh, with your Powers and Thrones book, which we've talked about on this podcast already, um, but you've also uh, reimagined a famous medieval ghost story in, in another book you've written, uh, The Tale of the Tailor and the Three Dead Kings. So this story you've retold, when and where was it first told? So around the year 1400,
4: a Cistercian monk in Byland Abbey, collected a group of 12 stories of the supernatural that had been going on around the abbey that that seemed to have been told by ordinary people of that part of the world. Uh, And they're written down on a single um, piece of vellum, parchment, uh, in the back of a collection of manuscripts which are not about ghost stories at all, which are things like... um, orations of cicero and christian theological tracts. so it's sort of like scribbled on the these stories are kind of scribbled in this incredibly crabby hand uh, as it were on the back of a napkin um and then remained in the library first of the abbey and then in the british library sort of untouched and largely ignored for more or less uh 600 years
3: and we'll we'll come to how they were rediscovered in in a bit but do we know anything about this the, the person who who wrote these stories so do, do we have a name for this monk or is this this just don't know anything about them
4: this is just anonymous monk Um, in Byland Abbey. Now what we do know is a little bit about Byland Abbey which is a a Cistercian monastery in a great part of the world for Cistercian monasteries that it had at one time been extremely grand that by the year 1400 it was falling into some state of disrepair with not many brothers and not many people serving them. Uh, There was a rattling around in the place but no we don't know anything really about the person who actually wrote this stuff down.
3: And do we have any sense about why they were written down or who they were written for?
4: They seem to have been written down for a few reasons. One is that it's just weird. It's just good, weird stuff that's been happening locally. The, the stories, most of them are very short. Uh, the Tale of the Tailor, as I've called it, is, is is by some distance the longest, and it's not very long in its original form. Uh, in some cases, there are a couple of sentences. Uh, so clearly the person who wrote these stories down had an interest in the wacky, the weird, and the supernatural. The fact that they've been collected with texts like Cicero, texts by various Christian theologians, would suggest that they're there for a form of. Uh, there's a sort of didactic purpose. There, there's sort of. They seem to be some sort of teaching aid, so that alongside the sort of um, the, uh, the the very formal things that are going to teach rhetoric, things that are going to teach theology. Here we have some sort of folk tales with which if you can imagine teaching uh, a group of bored um, young monks or, or men on their way to becoming uh, fully professed monks and they're rolling their eyes and finding it incredibly tiresome to sit through uh, hour after hour of Latin uh, rhetoric. You might just want to have in your back pocket something weird to pull out and entertain them. I mean if you've if you've ever been or had a good teacher that, that, that's a sort of go to um trick and I think that there's part of the purpose is to uh, is is that these are there to be drawn on as entertainment for recalcitrant students um but I think I think more probably there was just a sense that weird stuff was abounding and um whoever wrote them down just thought it would be fun to
3: to keep a, uh, a track of it So you mentioned that uh, the stories were kind of perhaps somewhat forgotten for for centuries. How do we know about them now? Tell us about M.R. James, uh, who he was and his involvement in this.
4: Well, almost exactly 100 years ago, uh, M.R. James, best known for his ghost stories, uh, best known today for his ghost stories, which have been adapted over the last 50 years, numerous times uh, for television, most recently um, by Mark Gatiss, who does one most Christmases. M. R. James was in fact in his day and we're going back to the 1920s uh, in this case um, M. R. James was an extremely accomplished medievalist Um, he edited I mean I still use uh, M. R. James's volume of Walter Mapp you know the waspish Welsh chronicler from the court of Henry II he was originally uh, transcribed and edited that text he'd been uh, in charge of the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge he'd been provost of Eton college. Uh, He was a a scholar at King's. He was an extremely accomplished medievalist, but he also had this interest in the supernatural. Now, in the year 1921, I think, uh, M. R. James was working in the then British Museum with the collection that's now uh, the core of the British Library, and a new catalogue came out of the manuscripts in the Royal Collection. And the catalogue mentioned in passing that this this, uh, group of Byland Abbey manuscripts had some weird ghost stories in the back. So M.R. James had, had known that this was there, had heard about it uh, from other scholars before, but was now prompted to go and take a look at these ghost stories. And he transcribed them in their medieval Latin, which he described somewhat dryly as very refreshing. <laughs> it's, it's extremely difficult and, t- and tortuous, in fact he transcribed them and they were published in the pages of the English Historical Review. Now, a couple of years later, in a local historical journal, they were then translated into English by a scholar called Grant. And they've been occasionally looked at by other scholars ever since, over the hundred years that have elapsed since the 1920s and now. Um, But they're not very well known at all.
3: And um, so I thought I'd better... Have a have a read of uh, the the original Mr James article. I had a had a quick gander, and as you say, he, he describes the as very refreshing. I. I had a look at the uh, transcription I thought I'm um, my medieval Latin is not up to translating this anyway so but I did enjoy his little he's you, you can see the sense of M.R. James uh, in his footnotes he talks about uh, uh, the ghosts do not twitter and squeak like those of Homer and there's another one another point where he says this is most curious why did the woman catch the ghost and bring it indoors which is um, so there's there's some strange stuff going on in these stories when when you read them when you look at them are they what are these stories like are they are they well told you said some of them very short I mean are these sorts of things that Stephen King would be proud of or or are we in a different category completely
4: we're in a different category completely I mean they're fragmentary they're partial they're of like extremely just weird stuff happening that doesn't have a coherent beginning middle and end Uh, there's no um, Hollywood story arc to most of these most of these tales. But I think that that may be why they appeal to M.R. James. Now, if you've ever read any of M.R. James's um, original ghost stories that he himself wrote, they do have this this fragmentary, broken, shard like character. If you think about well, what's one of M.R. James's most famous ghost stories? Um, a whistle and I'll come to you. You know, the story about the guy who goes up playing golf and finds a Templar uh, and goes rooting around in a Templar preceptory, finds a whistle, blows it, and then this odd thing weird face in a window and he feels like he's being kind of uh there's someone in his room at night and he's all tangled up in his bedsheets so it's not really a proper neat Stephen King style story um but it does more accurately reflect the if you've ever had any um any experience with feeling something unnatural or haunting or or uh, or supernatural it does more accurately reflect the the fleeting and um an inexplicable nature of of that experience mr james's stories reflect that and i think that the the tiny little shards of ghostly happenings in yorkshire in uh, around the turn of the um 14th and 15th century it, it's got that same essence to it
3: so do we know i mean uh, mr james uh Obviously, he had a great interest in these uh, in these sorts of stories, and from from his own writings, he was clearly in, into this topic. Um, and when you read that article uh, that he wrote, the original one, he sort of talks about them reminding him of, of Danish folklore. I think um, now you get kind of revenants and the like in in Viking sagas, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. Is it? I don't. Know, do, do we know where this, what sort of context from tradition these medieval ghost stories sit in?
4: I think that I mean in some of the some of the he said he's it's a Danish sagas but I think it, it's slightly close to Icelandic sagas. I mean there's a heavy there's a very famous Scandinavian ghost story in the course of a, a bigger chronicle and the 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 undead ghost is called Glam. I don't know if you know the story of Glam and who's a, a real beast, a real monster. He dies and he then comes back to life and he's. He, Capable of destroying houses and killing anyone who comes looking for him, and he sort of wanders into a much longer story and then just sort of disappears again. And so I suppose that some of that may be what M.R. James had in mind when he wrote that. That these these tales they don't really add up that well, and they they do seem very rooted in the. Uh, th- these are not these are not stories of. They're not like the Arthurian romances. They don't have this uh, this questing or um, or high chivalrous uh, character to them. They're not in any way close to, for example, if if we think about the, the supernatural beings who wander across Cretin de Troyes' stories. And if you think about Lancelot, the knight in the cart being driven by a, a, a sort of a dwarf and. By which I mean, like an impeno, clearly a supernatural character within the story, but uh, but it's part of a much grander kind of quest, which these stories have nothing in common with that uh, that medieval literary tradition.
3: I guess when you talk about Arthurian tradition, then you know the the Green Knight story, the which, Green is, Knight. which is being yeah. you know turned into a Hollywood film as we speak. It's a, it's a very strange story that's hard to hard to get your head get your head around. <laughs>
4: it, Well, yeah, it's weird. It's definitely weird. And I'm very eager to see the, uh, the the Green Knight cinematic adaptation. But again, the, it's that's something much more elevated, more courtly that has that engages with rules of uh, of chivalry, that engages with the ideas of questing. None of the stories from the Byland Abbey manuscript are anything like that. They're rooted in the soil, in the earth. They're like ordinary people going through just weird stuff when they're going about their ordinary business, walking from one place to another, and something comes out of the hedge and scares the hell out of them
0: still to come on the history extra podcast
4: now all the time we lived in that house that house that house made some weird noises that house creaks and that house definitely felt weird when you went in the two oldest rooms possibly because i'd been told the story that it was haunted possibly depending on how you approach these things because it was haunted
3: So the, the the one that you've um, chosen to retell. So you've called it the Tale of the Tailor and the Free Day King. It doesn't have a title, does it? There's no, no. you know, there's no titular bit on the on the manuscript. No. So, so that's from you. Um, was that the kind of the the fullest story? Was that the one where you had the most material to go on?
4: Yeah, well, I tell you, I tell you what happened was I went looking for a medieval ghost story first and foremost because it was Halloween twenty twenty. And it was were well, we locked down at that point? N- not quite, or maybe just about to be. Or so it was. It was bad times anyway. It was yeah. boring times, and uh, trick or treating was off the menu. And I thought, I've got, uh, I had, I've got two girls, and I thought, I'll, I'll tell them a ghost story. And I went looking for a medieval one to try and triangulate between, uh, try and slip a bit of knowledge in uh, as I did so. And th- that's how I came across this. Uh, M.R. James's original article about these stories, and I thought, right, and I went and I looked through them, and I thought, well, the only one that's got enough substance for me to tell them—that's not just like uh, a ghost came and threw me over the hedge and that was that—was the second of these twelve Byland Abbey ghost stories, and it's uh, it's by some distance the more the most fleshed out of the of the tales, uh, which made it attractive. It has a central protagonist whose name is Snowball, who is a tailor, probably his surname is Snowball. It involves him encountering several different ghosts, going off and having to do something, coming back once he's done it and encountering the ghosts again. And so that gives it a sort of a a narrative shape that most of the other stories lack. And it's just quite weird. It's really... In fact, it's really weird. Um, and so it struck me as the the best one that I could tell the kids. And uh, and M.R. James style, I sat down and in, in a session rewrote it, retold it. And I say M.R. James style because he used to write his own stories uh, quickly, longhand. I didn't do it longhand, but he used to write them quickly and, and in one or two sessions. And then I just... Then I had a story and I went to tell it to my kids and they, they couldn't have cared less. They were like we're going to watch something on youtube i <laughs> don't want that nonsense so i sent it to my publisher instead
3: <laughs> so so okay so you've you've preempted my answer. so you've channeled your are M- in mr james you've written the story in in one go and then you've you, you've sat down for a nice fireside chat with your with your with your kids uh, and and they didn't go for it they didn't think this uh the, the this medieval ghost story is uh, is going to hold their attention
4: i don't know if you ever if you've ever read the stories of molesworth I, I read the Molesworth stories when I was growing up. Molesworth is a, a character um, by Willens and Searle. Uh, there were a series of short Molesworth novels, and Molesworth was a, a sort of send-up of um, English public school day stories, and the central character was uh, Nigel Molesworth. Anyway, I t- tell you that only because there's a, there's a, a bit of Molesworth where uh, his father sits him and his brother, known as Mouldsworth II, down at Christmas and attempts to read them the Christmas, uh, Dickens's A Christmas Carol. <laughs> and it's the boys' worst bit of Christmas. They will do absolutely anything to avoid a dramatic telling of A Christmas Carol by their father, who wants nothing more than to spend Christmas Eve reading a, a scary ghost story to them. A similar effect uh, was at play with my children. I mean, actually, I gave the manuscript of the story to my eldest daughter, who's now nearly 13, and she, she read it in her room where her reaction could not be observed or gauged. Uh, and I said, after a day or so, what do you think? She went, yes, fine. That, that's the sum total. I, I, I deeply hope for a, a more enthusiastic response on the part of the readers of, of The Tale of the Tailor and the Three Dead Kings. Um, but on the other hand, there's now a very low baseline. <laughs> like anything above sullen fine is great for me.
3: So, so we know what people need to write on their online reviews for this book. Yeah, it's yeah. fine. we would yeah, cover fine. it. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, not going too much into into the tale of the story. Obviously, we want people to go and uh, have a read of it. But it, uh, it's it's a very curious tale about this chap Snowball, who who encounters some ghosts, does some things, wanders along some lonely roads, has some fairly scary sounding experiences. You've had to elaborate, I, I guess, to 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 make it into uh, a story a bit, but. Um, what, th- there are some themes in it that sort of touch on, on wider understanding of of, sort of medieval um, attitudes uh, in terms of purgatory, mass, and unburied bodies because that's kind of some of the things. What, what, uh, give gives a sense about what it tells us about medieval attitudes to death, I guess, uh, a, a little bit. Well, at the heart, it's
4: a story about moving into the afterlife. It's a story that starts... So Snowball the tailor is riding his horse along the road, and he's picked on by some ghosts and he's picked on because he hasn't heard mass that day so he's picked on because he's already slipped from the the christian ideal and the the ghosts or ghosts which take various forms uh send eventually tell him that that they are it is the spirit of somebody who was known in the local area to be a terrible person and was was um was considered damned when they died and the the soul is complaining that they are effectively in limbo in purgatory and, and can't and can't move on into another realm of the afterlife unless snowball helps them out which he then that's great he then goes off and does it um and comes back having done it and the consequences of him having done it are, are ambiguous let's say so it's a story about redemption. It's a story about the afterlife. It's a, and as you pointed out, it's a story about medieval attitudes to death, which are that there were certain things that you had to do every day. There were certain important things that you had to do in your life or not do in your life if you wanted to to pass into another world. It also shows us about the the deep elision between, quote, unquote, or, or rather with a small o, orthodox medieval Christian belief and pagan ideas of the afterlife and how these two things are really sort of woven together it's not as simple as here's a tortured soul that uh, is known to be in purgatory you know in the middle ages it was people could wo- could work out where a soul was or, or had a system for saying i think we know where this particular soul is i think it was richard the lionheart Someone had worked out that because he'd paid for an awful lot of masses for his soul, his his path through purgatory was going to be quite fast. And so on a certain date, about I, I I'll get the number wrong, but I think it's sort of fifty-six years after Richard the Lionheart died, there was a big celebration that it was like Richard's got to heaven. He's made it through purgatory. It's gotta be. It's like it's to the day. We worked this out. Okay, so there was <laughs> there was a, so that's a sort of fairly orthodox understanding of a soul's passage through purgatory. In these stories Oh, and in this story, Tale of Taylor and Three Dead Kings in particular, you've got something that's much more kind of a, a a messy combination of the soul can't move on because there are some things that he it has to sign off in its uh its sort of Christian duties. But on the other hand, it's taking the form of of weird animal-type ghosts that are really nothing to do with uh scripture or or recognized Christian tradition. So it's this really like messy kind of interesting mixture of folk belief and sort of higher uh, Christian theology, I suppose.
3: And as you're saying, we, we think this is probably written sometime in the what, early 15th century, to, to turn of the 15th century, 1400s. So. so that's you know, quite a long time after... Christianity had been uh, had had been uh, embraced in Britain, in England. Um, it, it's interesting that these folklore traditions still permeate, but I guess they still do today, don't they? Even though we're um,
4: yeah, although, yeah, although I think that the story of Christianity spread in England, Britain, but full stop in the West is the story of it. It's finding compromise between local tradition and its own internal theology if you think back to where, where are christian uh, it's early christian churches in england are often found near what had been pagan shrines in the countryside right and, and meetings of river and water sources in pre-christian times there's christianity throughout the middle ages is traditionally quite or has periods where it's 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 good at compromise it's really really good at compromise with folk beliefs and the obvious one that everyone trots out is why is Christmas at Christmas because it co- you know, coincides. Why is Easter at Easter because these important ritual dates in the Christian calendar are over time massage towards uh, times of older social celebration or communal coming together. So I think it's it's that's not that odd in the medieval context. Um, and I think it's not odd in the modern context either. I mean, if you, why are we giving out chocolate eggs with pictures of rabbits on them at Easter? You know, we still do exactly this thing. It's, you know, it's not Jesus on the on the front of your Cadbury's cream egg, is it? It's like a chick. That's that's compromise <laughs> between these two festivals. And you know, did did Jesus really want you to get a PlayStation Five to celebrate his birth? I don't know. I don't think so. I'm not sure. I can't, I, I'm not qualified to say.
3: So yes, this, <laughs> um, th- this might be sort of unknowable. Um, but do we do we know what the medieval attitude to ghosts was? Were, were people sort of in you know in fear of stepping out of their houses at night for fear of bumping into a ghost? Do we have much much sense of, of what they might have thought about this sort of thing?
4: Well, I, I suppose I should say that. Um, I'm just a dude who wrote a story in this context, right? And I know a little bit about the Middle Ages, but I'm not I'm not a, a I'm not deeply expert on medieval ghosts. But from my amateurish understanding uh, and the the number of times that I've sort of bumped into ghosts as it were in medieval chronicles, they just seem to be much as they are today accepted as something that kind of can You can get lucky slash unlucky and come across a ghost. When I came across the story of the, which I've called The Tale of the Tailor, I was actually, I had in mind, I was like, I know a ghost story from the Middle Ages. What is it? I couldn't think, and I couldn't think, and I went Googling. uh, Well, and and then I went through um, Catalyst, the library catalogue, and eventually I found this, but this wasn't what I was looking for. And I remembered later, I was looking for William of Newborough's Chronicle, which mentions a revenant. Is that the right way to say it? Or Revenant. Revenant, it is Revenant. Revenant like the Revenant. Leo de Capra Yeah, you know, The Walking Dead. Um, it's often cited as a sort of uh, a vampire style story that the dead had been rising from their graves and tormenting people. So my, my sense whenever I've come across ghosts uh, in the chronicles as opposed to legends is that um, much like now, you know, they sometimes you'll, you'll just get a ghost and it's like, it's pretty weird. I, I grew up in a house. Uh, that's not the end of the story. I grew up in a house um, for <laughs> about 10 years. When we moved into this house, the original part of the house had been 16th century, 16th century little tiny farm cottage. And the old bit of the house had a uh, a chimney with a priest hole in it, right? And so the old house had been two rooms, one downstairs with a big fireplace, and the chimney and the priest hole, one room upstairs, thatch roof. Over the time, it had been extended, but that was the old bit of the house. When my parents bought this house, they were told by the people they bought it off, oh, well, when we took it over five years ago or whatever, we had to unblock all of the 16th century bit of the house. The doors had been like banged, boarded up, and the previous owners to us but one had refused to go into that bit of the house because they were absolutely convinced it was haunted, potentially by the ghost of uh, a priest. Now, all the time we lived in that house, that house that house made some weird noises. That house creaked, and that house definitely felt weird when you went in the two oldest rooms. Possibly because I'd been told the story that it was haunted. Possibly, depending on how you approach these things, because it was haunted. Uh, there's no way of telling that you can't run a controlled experiment to see. Uh, however, that's a, it struck me that that's a good example of you just kind of
3: Sometimes you come across a place that's haunted; it just is. And I think in the Middle Ages, kind of similar. Right. So, so finally, tell me this: so you've you've reimagined this story, you've rewritten it, um, you've you've mined what the uh, what the monk wrote, and then you've uh, you've put your own twist on it. Did you, in so doing, did you get any sort of? Further insight into uh, into the guy who wrote it. This, uh, and I assume it's a guy, this anonymous. Uh, that's a tricky word, Anonymous monk from the 15th century. He seems like a bit of a gloomy sort to me. Maybe he wasn't. Did you? Did you kind of through writing this get a, any closer insight into into the monk that actually put pen the original tale?
4: It's quite hard. Um, I, the The sense I got from from reading the quite short, fragmentary bit of of this. Story as it existed in the Byland Abbey Chronicle, in the context of the other eleven stories that he'd written down, was that um, he's not not necessarily wide-eyed and credulous, but certainly bought into the existence of the afterlife. Was was uh, was a pragmatic believer in ghosts, let's say. Did have a sort of gothic uh, small g, I think, uh, interest in Weird Stuff, with which uh, I can sympathize, wanted to illustrate through the stories uh, the perils of impiety, wasn't a very good storyteller, fundamentally, was quite, uh, quite nervous about upsetting local people. The ghost who is tormented and who Snowball the tailor has. So Snowball the tailor is a named character, but the ghost who has to, who has to be sort of um, released from purgatory by Snowball the tailor is never named. In fact, the name is deliberately sort of redacted in the original story. And I've kept that the same way in my telling of the story um, because I, I suppose the reason might be that this is a sort of an eminent local personage or that it's somebody whose name will be, uh, to use the 21st century argot, triggering to those who hear the story. Um, but but so the monk is kind of very aware of not upsetting people, even when scribbling down stories for not for public or wide public consumption. So he's obviously uh, either a coward or quite sensitive to local interests, depending how you look at it. Beyond that, it's somewhat hard to say. And in the process of writing what is, I suppose, essentially fiction, which is different from writing nonfiction, I discovered, you, of course, then put the stamp of your own preoccupations on the story. So this story has a lot of my fictional style to it. Uh, that it, that tries to tease out the gloominess that you've recognised in the original, but overlays it with another sort of s- with a gothic vision that I'm developing in other fiction that I'm writing at the moment.
3: And uh, do you have high hopes for the movie rights on this one?
4: Enormously high. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, as soon as I call Mark Gatiss. Will <laughs> <laughs> your yeah,
3: screens uh,
4: about never? I don't know. Who knows? It's it's a quite a good story. It's got an M. R. James connection. And if I was making a if I was commissioning a film at the BBC to be shown at Christmas that had a little medieval twist, and an amusing horse, we haven't even talked about the amusing horse. I'd I'd plump for the tale of the tailor in Three Dead Kings.
3: Uh, i i've uh, deliberately not talked about the amusing horse because i thought maybe uh maybe our listeners might want to uh, to pick up the story themselves but uh, uh, there is there is a strange horse in it i would i would agree uh, which refers back to our previous podcast conversation about the great stirrup controversy um, which uh, if any listeners want to refer back to our conversation on powers and thrones then uh, then we talk about that there um so look so uh if you want a, a medieval ghost story uh the tale of the tailor and the Three dead kings uh, by dan jones is out now dan Thank you very much for your time once more.
4: Thank you.
0: That was Dan Jones. His ghost story, The Tale of the Tailor and the Three Dead Kings, is out now, published by Head of Zeus. Dan's most recent non fiction book, Powers and Thrones, is also available now. And the podcast that was mentioned, where Dan and Dave spoke about Powers and Thrones, is available in our archive at historyextra.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us again tomorrow when Professor Joyce Tildesley will be answering your questions about Egyptian pharaohs.